Hey, welcome to the Wilds Cast. Just finished an unbelievable conversation with Dr. Jeremy England. Now, Jeremy England is a PhD from Stanford. He's a physics professor at MIT. He's a legit physicist who just wrote this book, Every Life is on Fire, How Thermodynamics Explain the Origin of Living Things. And I questioned him about the authenticity of Torah, of God, God's existence, and of Judaism. This is the third and last in our series on truthfulness of Judaism. And we uh, and I, I spoke to Dr. Joshua Berman, got a little more of an academic uh, perspective from a historical perspective about Judaism. Spoke to Rabbi Trugman about a little more of the Kabbalah interconnectivity. And now a conversation about why from the perspective of a scientist, do you take Torah so seriously? We know that always science and religion seem to always be butting heads. And it's it's sometimes rare to get a scientist who seems to be a believer. What is it about science, physics, thermodynamics that is somehow inspiring this young uh, physicist to, 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 to not only consider Torah, but to believe in God and to believe in the authenticity of the Torah and to become an Orthodox rabbi. Yeah, he is rabbi, uh, rabbi, I should call him rabbi, but I've been referring to him as Dr. Jeremy England is an Orthodox rabbi. And we talked to him about what is it about the Torah that gives him permission to believe that it is divine in nature and how, how some of those conflicts between Torah and science can somehow be worked out. He's really a fascinating individual that has a very, very unique approach to his Judaism from becoming a physicist. So take a listen. Welcome to the Wildcast, Dr. Jeremy England. Thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar, Dr. England, what a great name, by the way, got his PhD from Stanford, was a physics professor at MIT, and is quite the impressive individual. We're going to get right into this. This is the third in a series on authenticity, on different ways that we can approach Torah Judaism, and to whatever degree that any human being can know something is real, something is truthful. So I interviewed Dr. Joshua Berman, who gave us more of an academic perspective, uh, Rabbi Trugman, a little more of a Kabbalistic interconnectivity perspective. And now we want to go a little more, I guess, into the world of science. Uh, you came up with this groundbreaking theory, which you term dissipative adaption. This is like your Darwin evolutionary theory. Not, a, not that it's about evolution per se, but when Darwin developed his groundbreaking theory the theory of evolution, natural selection, he seemed to uh, have some sort of spiritual crisis. It seemed to move him away from God. Whereas your dissipative adaptation and your science seems to be moving you forward and closer to God. You are, I'm told, an ordained rabbi. Is this true, Jeremy? You're a rabbi. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So we don't have a lot of scientists who become rabbis. So tell us, what was it about your theory? What was it about your studying? What's, what's it about science that's drawing you closer to God and to Judaism? So I think that uh, there are two different directions from which I, I could approach answering that question. One would be to start by thinking about what does the Torah have to say about what science is and what it is to reason about the world scientifically. And, and I think that's an important piece of the subject. And then there's also kind of a question of 
as I'm approaching the world as a, as a scientist and understanding things about it or trying to figure it out, are there things there that, I don't know, help me feel like I see more in the Torah than I was able to recognize before I had mm -hmm. uh, thought things through from the perspective of science. And I think both of those are maybe are, are, are interesting um, discussions. Probably the, the second one is a little bit shorter, so I'll start with you know that kind of a point. Good, yeah, I, I'm more I, so, interested in, in I'm more interested in that one too. Sure, sure. So uh, I, I think that in general, I'm definitely not someone who subscribes to the view that there's some kind of a, objective path to faith in biblical religion that goes through scientific reasoning. I think that um, we see in our tradition. Uh, very much a kind of a, a neutrality in, in that regard that, you know, if you're David HaMelech, you can look at the natural world and say, that, that the whole world, uh, you know, how manifold are your works, uh, O oh Lord, um, uh, they're all made in wisdom and, you know, uh, the, the world's filled with your, your uh, handiwork, right? And if you if you have the disposition to participate in a brit in like the covenant um, that, that the Torah you know presents to us, then you can look at all of creation and and you can you can see Hashem's hand in it. But I wouldn't want to make the case somehow that like if you just really you know look closely enough and you understand the world as a scientist, it's going to kind of be forced on you somehow that you know you you you, you didn't know you were looking for Hashem but you found him. I think it has to be admitted, people can be very intelligent, they can be very knowledgeable, they can be really good at science, and there's a there's a component missing, let's say, to how they approach uh, the diversity of ways we can uh, arrive at understanding of truth about the world, and and they're just they're not going to get there because their science gets deeper or better necessarily. That being said, um, I think that if if you are studying Torah and you're also trying to understand the world as a scientist. Uh, and you kind of assume that the Torah is smarter than you, as opposed to kind of always holding it up to your yardstick and asking, you know, like, did you know that? Did you know that? Um, then what you discover is it has its comments to make on the things that you're discovering, but it's going to it's going to use that to teach you a lesson. So in a specific example um, of work that uh, I've done in, in my research in, let's say, the last 10 years, you know, which you mentioned, you know, this work on dissipative adaptation, that's a whole story in itself. Uh, but, but talking about it sort of in one sentence, it's about how matter that isn't alive gets organized into shapes and behaviors that look more lifelike by simple physical principles in some instances. And one of the things which I write about in this uh, book that I wrote called Every Life is on Fire uh, which is both a book about physics, but also contains some commentaries on Torah. One of the things I was very stunned to notice once I realized uh, is that there's actually a, a passage in the Torah that seems to also be contemplating this issue of what is life as a material phenomenon and what are the analogies to things that we can relate to in the experience of, a, of an individual in everyday life that help you to grasp a little bit of what the physics of lifelike self-organization is. And so I, I actually think this comes from the moment where Moshe is at the burning bush, that all the signs that are given to him by God, they you don't necessarily always look at them this way, but one of the things they have to do with is the boundary between life and non-life. So he's given 
a sign where he, he takes his staff and throws it on the ground, it becomes a serpent. So it's a non-living staff that becomes a living animal. And then he's given the sign where his skin becomes kind of snowy and white. So there's this kind of disruption in the boundary of his body, which is the boundary between a living thing, which is him, and the non-living surroundings um, that are immediately around him. So it's again about kind of the ambiguity, the boundary between life and non-life. And then, of course, maybe the most obvious sign is, you know, the the pouring of water or the water of the, the Nile River uh, on the dry ground where it becomes blood. So there's this notion of flowing water mixing with the sort of dust of the earth and then becoming the essence of life. So all of these signs are about the boundary between life and non-life. And if you actually kind of unpack them as metaphorical talismans for different aspects of just like material phenomena of the world, you can play with like water flowing through sand and stuff like that. There's actually quite some interesting parallelism between the physics of those kinds of things and, and what you really need to start thinking about how would you get more lifelike behavior in inanimate material if, you, if you're studying this from the perspective of physics, you know, how, how lifelike behaviors emerge in a way that might help explain the origins of life. So I wouldn't say that means that the Torah becomes a science textbook because it's not trying to be that, but there are resonances there that I think are quite striking if you understand the physics well enough. Um, and then the question is, why is it there? Which I, I think is even more interesting. And But that's a separate discussion. So, so basically, you know, um, just as a rabbi always trying to dip to whatever degree that I can, I'm certainly just a layman when it comes to science or history, but I always like to point to the continued existence of the Jewish people against all odds as some sort of evidence. I don't know if you want to use the word evidence. It's certainly not a proof, but some sort of indication of a higher being, right? And then when it comes to science, I've always said that there's two aspects. Number one, what caused matter to come into existence originally? Maybe science can explain how it happened, right? The Big Bang Theory, but what caused that bang? What caused that explosion to happen? And then number two, within the world of science, the complexity of uh human biology, of, of chemistry, of just the world, the galaxies, the uh, cosmos, uh, just bespeaks a, you know, to, to believe that all of this complexity could have just sort of developed on its own. So those two areas, if you could just speak just from your opinion as a scientist, do you believe that that matter can come into existence without there being, uh, you know, uh, a supernatural, you know, causation to that? And um, and does the sophisticated complexity of of, uh, of of our reality, of our physical reality, in your mind, also imply a creator? Not prove, but but you know, imply. So, I think that I should start by saying I definitely think it's possible, either as an individual or looking at the, the national history of Am Yisrael, to reason and see evidence from what happens in the world that confirms a view that sees the Torah as the foundational source for what we understand to be true. But all that being said, I, I tend not to be very receptive to arguments that either fall into the category of what you might call intelligent design or maybe sort of adjacent ways of arguing that are kind of reaching for a a meeting point between how scientists reason about the distant past and 
how we maybe try to bring those Baruch who bring uh, the God of Israel into the picture when we're you know going back to the very beginning. And the reason I say that is because I, I think that to me, and I, I learned this I think from the Torah actually, um, although I think it's also just good philosophy of science. I think science is a method that you have to think of as uh, fitting within boundaries or guardrails that are set by the assumptions on, on which it operates. It's it's a way of saying, let's look at evidence in the present, like especially when, when you're going to the past and trying to figure out what happened in the past. It's a way of saying, let's look at evidence from the present. Let's reason about it a certain way. We'll make certain assumptions. And the whole game is we're not going to give up or accept answers of a certain kind so that we can keep kind of chipping away and looking at how the pieces fit together and then we'll 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 make progress that way uh and and the problem is with a lot of these kind of arguments that try to say like for example oh there's so much complexity you know that bespeaks um design or you know it's evidence of a designer there's there's a whole lot when people try to sound rigorous in the way they make this argument like in, in intelligent design they're always going to be making reference to some notion of probability. Like what's the likelihood of such and such happening if it weren't the case that there was some kind of, you know, someone stacking the deck, someone uh, shaving the odds or sort of making them be different uh, than what we would have naively assumed. But the problem is that that probability always comes from some set of naive assumptions. And it's always easy to make overly naive assumptions and get really, really whoppingly small probability but if you just made different ones that might actually be more reasonable, if you thought about them, you know, as, as a scientist might, then, you know, you can change that probability. And so I think that intelligent design often the way that it operates, it's, it's kind of you erect a straw man that is not particularly, you know, punching at the highest weight possible and then knock it down and then say, oh, wow, you know, we have to give up. We can never explain this. So it must be that instead there's this. Uh, explanation that comes outside of the game of science that, that that is the only way we can understand where this all came from. And, I, and in that sense, I think, you know, where, where my, my scientific research inserts into that whole discussion, if, if you're, if you're talking about, you know, origins of life kind of questions, you can make some very naive suppositions about, oh, well, if I had a mixture of these chemicals and those chemicals, you know, what are the odds of it all kind of assembling together? Like people always talk about where like a hurricane puts together a 747, you know, et cetera. But there's always this presumption that we know that the, the parts of the 747, so to speak, were just all lying around randomly all over the place and that the hurricane had to sort of take them from a completely random arrangement to put them together. And part of what my research is about is saying, there's a lot of very sophisticated non-randomness in the organization of matter that you can argue you get for free from physics that can operate in the absence of life. So you don't need life in order to get many of what we think of as being distinctively lifelike behaviors like predictive computation or energy harvesting or self-copying. Um, and, and this is something that it's a work in progress, you know, in, in both certainly in my own research, but also in the field in general. But I just, I don't think it, it leads to productive progress in science by kind of throwing up our hands and saying, oh, we'll never explain this. You know, you always can do that, but I, I don't think that's what science is supposed to be doing. And then when you're talking about, by the way, like the beginning of the universe, the, this is an even simpler discussion at some level. There's no such thing as science about what creates universes. Like people, who, you know, some cosmologists like to play these mathematical games of 
making theoretical models of how a universe would be generated according to some rules. But that is the ultimate question begging where you say, okay, but where did the rules for how universes get made come from? You know, and, and no one who I think actually is, is serious um, or, you know, if you really pushed on them, uh, can tell you about the probability of the universe having the laws of physics that it does. They can tell you about that probability according to some assumptions they made up for how laws of physics get determined in a universe, but there's no science that can be done on that question because we don't have many different universes that we've studied the process of their creation from. And if we did, we would just have the question begging, you know, of where the process of universe generation came from and who determined the rules for that. So I, I think the presence of life, like complexity in the universe, you can always say it's marvelous that the way the universe works is capable of producing what it does. Um, and so at the level of uh, comparing it to some, you know, other universe you imagined by with no evidence whatsoever for why it could be that a, 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 another universe could exist that way, it might seem to you kind of, like this is a universe where this complexity can exist. But I, my personally, if you're asking my opinion, I don't find those arguments compelling because they feel kind of muddled in terms of, are we talking about science or are we, we stepping outside of science and doing something more? No, I'm really, I'm, I'm really, I'm really asking you as a scientist because, and yeah. I realize that there's nothing compelling. If it was so easily compelling one way or the other, there wouldn't be such a debate, I assume. Yeah. But I guess if in our own lives, I've always said this to my students, you can never know anything for sure, but you have to then go and, you know, what theory takes into account the most, you know, explains the most. Yeah. So does does God explain, does the existence of a supernatural God help us, you know, better help us explain the complexity in the universe or or not necessarily? I mean, I, 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 I think getting, I, I think I get the sense of, of your question and I want to, I want to kind of counterbalance what I just said, because on the one hand, again, as a scientist, I think the point is I don't see good science hewing in the direction of having anything to say about that question. I think if science is done right, it goes perpendicular to that question. It just isn't trying to weigh in on either side because it, it sort of, by definition, has to operate um, without being interested in or capable of, of, of giving answers to that kind. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. I think if you... If yeah, yeah. Having said that, you know, if you if you look in the Torah itself, I think the Torah is trying to teach us about how, as individuals or as a nation, to look at experience through a lens that is not scientific, but you know, has some things in common with science in terms of its ability to sort of look at evidence and and make judgments, and and it does actually want us to 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 come to reasoned conclusions about. Um, let's say, how, it, how possible it is to see the hand of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to see the hand of the God of Israel in the world. So what do I mean by that? Um, so if you look, for example, at the, the life of, of Joseph, the son of Jacob, um, mm -hmm. when, when he's you know, being sold down to slavery in Egypt by his brothers, there's this little detail that the Torah gives you where he's being carried by Ishmaelites, who are these traveling traders, and they are bringing spices down to Egypt. Um, and so it's Tzri, uh, Lot, and Nechat, these three different spices. Um, so that's a, a little random detail. 
doesn't seem like it matters. It's just sort of window dressing, although the, none of the things that the Torah talks about are ever window dressing, right? So it so happens later, uh, way at the other end of the story, when it's all kind of coming to a close now. So at this point, uh, Shimon is being held captive by Joseph, who's now the viceroy in Egypt. Um, and, and the brothers have gone back to, to Yaakov to say, like, can you can you send Benjamin? Because he's saying he wants to see Benjamin. And there's this whole sort of, you know, peel pool about whether that's possible. But in the end, Yaakov agrees to send Benjamin, but he says, like, we should send, like, you know, some, some I don't know, like a bribe, maybe not a bribe, like something to sweeten the deal. So Zimrat Aretz, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And so he sends some nuts and some honey and then also some spices. And what does he send? Tri, lot, and nechat. So three different spices. And what's interesting, I think, about this example is that it, it's showing you exactly the idea of what it is, like I was referring to before, to compute a small probability or something. Like, what are the odds of this happening, quote, unquote, at random? Because uh, it's 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 three different things that are all co that are all co-occurring and lining up. It's exactly the same three spices that the Ishmaelites were carrying, and maybe you get one right and it's a coincidence, or you get two right and you're like, wow, that's a kind of unlikely coincidence. But when you get all three right, you're in this this realm of like, wow, that's so unlikely that I just I I need an explanation for that alignment, that that unlikelihood. Mm-hmm. You know, this 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 doesn't cohere with how I thought the coins were being tossed and the way the world was supposed to be working. That's how the individual experiences that. But the, but the point is that Joseph is the only one who's going to notice this, right? Like there is no objective scientific, you know, uh, the science is about everyone sees the same evidence and data and everyone comes to the same, you know, uh, agreement about like what's being observed and then you know you can start to talk about predictive relationships between things right it's it's about the ideal of objectivity what this experience of joseph is pointing to is that in the subjective experience of an individual who has all these kind of like specialized pieces of experience that only he knows like line up this with that that somehow it suddenly becomes like this is hashem's way of sort of you know giving you a little nudge and saying Hello, this is not just, you know, a random number generator that you're surfing through. There are things happening in your experience that are a message. And in this case, you know, maybe it's it's somewhat clear. It's it's Yosef is being told, like this is this chapter in your life is is coming to a close. Like this is the exact scent, the exact aroma, the exact fragrance that you immediately will recognize because you smelled it at the beginning when you were being sold down to Egypt as a slave, and now you're smelling it again. And the, the, the recognition of smells and their connection with memories is instantaneous. So the Torah is telling us no one can fake this. Like Joseph knows that's exactly the smell that he smelled before. And he knows that in a sense, it can only be a sign from the creator of the world himself because Jacob didn't know that Joseph was being carried mm. down to Egypt by Ishmaelites who had exactly that incense with them. Uh, but he chose those scents, those, 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 those spices. Are, are those, are, I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious, Jeremy, are those the types of things that inspired you to begin taking Torah seriously? Those little, little details. And if there are other examples, I'd love to hear them. Yeah. So I, if we're talking about my personal, uh, trajectory, let's say, in, in, in approaching Torah, I think earlier on, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in in the tradition very much. Um, and I really mm-hmm. only started Torah study in a serious way 
in graduate school. Uh, and it was a gradual process. And I think at the beginning, there was much more of this sense, you know, if, if, if we wanted to go into the story, I had reason to sort of suddenly say, okay, I want to take hold of my, my tradition and my identity and really just kind of grab onto it and assert that it's important and act that way. And it's not about what I believe, it's about a decision to grab onto it and not let go and to stand for it and to trust it as a procedure and, and just see how that goes. And so I think for years at the beginning, I was uh, not, let's say, assuming anything about what happened in the world had anything to do with some possibility of Akados Baruch Hu kind of talking back to you, so to speak, right? Like it was more like, I'm going to do this in the world because I've made a choice and that's the best that one can do. Um, and I think it, it took me a long time to, you know, be become open to the idea that there could be kind of a, a a possibility that from the from the perspective of you know and the experience of an individual that you really can actually take the techniques you're learning to read the text carefully right the, to read the torah itself carefully and and noticing the connections between things these little details that line up and you suddenly say oh, wow you know there's a lot over here with korach that really connects with the destruction of stone and also when Aaron is like making his staff turn into a tanin and like you can string it all together and you can make it for torah right like you can do those things with your life too. And you know, you have to be careful about this. And I, I think it's it's not um, something that should be done lightly. And it's not something I I think I could trust enough to, to look at that way for a long time. But once you have the, the, the discipline you've developed in Talmud Torah itself, I do think that, you know, the experience of individuals, it, it, it is at some level, if you choose to have it be, it is a text that Akados Baruch Hu is writing for you for your interpretation, and it creates the possibility of a relationship. And I think that's much more obvious when you look at the, the experience of the nation, right? You know, uh, when you look at the, but, but the history. But if I can just stop yeah, you sorry, for a second. Yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. So is that what, I'm just curious what motivated you as a scientist. Now, I, I, I understand it's not the science that brought you into Torah, but as a rationally thinking scientist, what was it about Torah? Or maybe it wasn't Torah. Maybe was it something that happened to you personally that you had like some sort of spiritual aha moment and then you looked at the Torah afterwards and started seeing these clues or these connections, this interconnectivity a little, these little details, the spices. I'm really, I'm curious because um, it's, it's not so often, unfortunately, that... Um, I mean, I know Orthodox scientists, uh, there's a whole convention and, and, and conferences that happen with hundreds of, you know, but, but uh, it doesn't sound like you were raised with this belief. And I think yeah, that's quite no. unique. I think that's quite unique. So I'm, I'm as an outreach rabbi, I'm, I'm very interested in hearing <laughs> um, what, what drew you to, and not just towards religion, like that you liked it. Uh, there's a lot of attractive things. I want to know that because this is about authenticity. What was it that you found compelling that this could have been from God or some, some, something else that's, that's truly spiritual? Yeah. I, it's, it's very hard to pinpoint a moment. Like I think um, after I started leaning in this direction, there are things, you know, it's easier to, to point to where it, it, it becomes an issue of it it's like how, how the Torah says about Moshe with the burning bush itself, like, and Hashem saw that he turned to look that 
the choice to put a certain interpretive frame on your experience uh, is in a sense you know, that has to come first. So, or, or I, and, and I mean, I've, I, I've argued elsewhere, I think this whole moment with Moshe and the burning bush, like the signs I was just mentioning before in the context of the boundary between life and non-life, I think they're also about communication. Like the, the staff that turns into a serpent, the staff is a, 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 an inanimate implement and it's a dead thing. Mm-hmm. It's like a clee. It's a it's a an implement in your hand. It's predictable and it's metrical and it's regular and it's not going to surprise you. And then it doesn't turn into an elephant because I think the point is that it's it's turning into the animal that's most like a staff. It's really about a shift in perspective mm-hmm. on the same thing. And the point is that the, the nahash, the the serpent, is like the talking animal of the Bible. So it's saying right. like. This piece of the world, if you look at it and you say, this is a material object that's dumb and has very predictable, simple properties, that's how it will look to you. But if you if you start to relate to it as a piece of a holistic reality that's like a talking animal, that there's kind of a, a connectedness of things and there's a holism and there's an agency and there's a voice and all of that. If you're, if you're, if you're looking for that, then you can find it, but that's something that has to be, you know, it's a choice in, in how to relate to the fabric of experience and whether you're, you're willing to see it as a medium of communication. And I think that it probably started, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm a very textual person. I really, I, I start in the text of the Torah itself. And then I, mm-hmm. I think I, I try to be very sort of militant with myself about like, if it, if it seems, to, if an idea seems to be pointing a certain way, then I kind of have to take it seriously, even if it's discomforting. And so I think I kind of started to think in those terms about the text. And I was like, okay, so what would be the serious implication of that? The serious implication of that is, um, you know, I should actually be looking at my experience and not treating it like it has no meaning or it has no nothing to express to me. And, and I think the other, the other piece of that was just growing up a bit and, you know, starting to like... Uh, age and have you know a family and problems with health and different things like that and and sort of starting to like to really wonder whether the way i was trying to do things was enough because i think and i this is something i I, i've tried to argue or comment on a little bit here and there is that you know i'm very much culturally and just for my personal history most attracted to and plugged into if we're talking about the orthodox jewish world like the modern orthodox perspective. You know, I'm a mm-hmm. great admirer mm-hmm. of Rav Soloveitchik and read his works early on when I was turning towards Torah. But I think that if you look at the the culture of modern orthodoxy, a criticism you could lodge is that there's a fairly widespread kind of divided worldview that obtains where there's like very good commitment to observance and praxis on the one hand and, you know, and Torah study and making that a very deep and intellectual undertaking but then when you say like well why do you get hit by a bus or why do you get cancer or whatever that's just like random physics you know like when when stuff like that happens to people now we suddenly take this very like hellenistic view of the world that it's like laws of nature that determine all of those things and like you can't you know beat the house and it's just like it's not that that part isn't up to you but like there's a sort of a, a discipline in relating to that experience through the praxis of Torah. I think there's something very healthy about that on the one hand, because it really kind of 
you, you you're not asking healthy health, healthy and what health, just to clarify healthy in 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 not attributing any spiritual religious causation to yeah, something like, that happens to a I person? think I think having a lot of reservation about talking in terms of like oh well yeah everything that happens to you is like a punishment or everything that happens to you is a, a reward or a punishment or some kind of sign or some kind of trial you know being overly willing to read that into experience has its pitfalls as well. And I think mm -hmm. there are things that are very positive about, you know, a, a worldview that, that says like, let's try to make it as best we can by assuming that we're not going to you know, be so mechalanes. We're not going to rely on miracles. We're, we're, we're going to just kind of try to like get through with the way we, you know, the, 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 the Josephian view of the world that like, Akadosh Baruch who is Elohim who decreed the laws of nature and now that's what we have to deal with and then we can kind of be clever and smart and figure it out because that's part of what he wants us to do. He doesn't want us to be just like skating from one Kriyat Yamsuf, like splitting of the sea to another and relying on miracles right. and yeah. you know, that's a whole sort of discussion. But I think there, there's an aspect of it that's healthy. But I also think that if it's really like you're all the way at that extreme and I think Yosef at Sadiq, Joseph, in many ways represents that, there is a problem. There's a there's a dearth of sort of suppleness or flexibility uh, or resilience at the individual level and at the community and national level. You start to just be unwilling to do certain things because they seem impossible to you. You start to, you know, have this kind of ideological creep where you, you, you say, you know, the Torah is right when science doesn't say it's wrong or when sort of modernity doesn't say it's wrong. And, and maybe just most basically and fundamentally, like if you're stuck at the bottom of a well and you just don't believe at all that anyone actually can hear you, you know, and, and that your tefillot are like a, a good discipline for your personal development and nothing more, that is right. a, a, that's, that's putting handcuffs on your, your idea of a Kadosh Baruch Like it's, it's clearly both. Yeah not actually what the Torah is enjoining upon you. And also it's, it's much less comforting. Um, and, 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 and so you don't want to like a, you don't want a false comfort, but th there has to be comfort. Like the, the Torah should be a real comfort. And, and if it, if it can't be without the reality of a Kadosh Baruch who's imminence in the events of the world, then that has to make it in somehow. And I think at some point I was like, okay, so it's on, like, let's look for that. And where do you find that? Where do you find that, Jeremy? I mean, because you're saying a couple of very important things. Like, I'm also in the modern Orthodox world, and I actually began MGE as an attempt to um, interest less affiliated Jews in modern Orthodoxy because I felt that I, I believe in its tenets. Uh, I didn't have the zechut of learning directly before Rabbi Salvatric, but all my teachers at YU were his students. I've read much of what he's written, and I, I, I teach about it a lot. And, you know, there is this ain't something a la nace kind of like attitude that we have. You know, it's uh, it's very Maimodian. It's very like we'll, we'll, we'll explain things, you know, spiritually, supernaturally, as much as we have to, but better not to. You know, better to explain things more naturally. But then we know, I think also we just, it's just complicated and we also don't want to upset people. You know, you're you're going through this terrible suffering right now. Oh, it must be because of some, you know, terrible thing you said or did at some point. We don't know. And we need a certain humility when it comes to these areas. 
Uh, my, yeah. my, I just came back from Israel and my, both my son and daughter are studying in yeshiva and they're both learning Sefer Eov, uh, the book of Job, and, and really grappling with these kinds of issues. To what degree can we really know when something bad happens? Mm-hmm. Why it's happening to us, and and Rabbi Salvechik's famous approach from "Kol Dodido Fake," "Behold, my beloved is knocking," uh, where he articulates a very interesting perspective on that. But you know, w- what is it that um, I- I'm curious again as a rational thinking scientist? What is it about the Torah that grabs you, that makes you think it's more than just a great narrative, or the modern Orthodox community is? you know, a good way to live. Because we have a lot of orthoprax types of Jews. We have a lot of Jews that want to send their kids to day school, want to keep kosher and keep Shabbat. They don't really believe in it. They don't really believe, you know, and and that's a problem. That's one of the reasons I believe that some of our kids are not sticking with it. Because they can tell right away when their parents are just sociologically, you know, uh, committed, but not really theologically. Yeah. So I think that... uh... In a funny way, I uh, it feels to me like I've been helped a little bit by the kind of physicist that I am because I'm what's called a statistical physicist by training, which is the mm-hmm. uh, it's the kind of physics where you study, and this is why my research ended up being connected with origins of life and things like that. You study systems where you understand something about the the simple rules obeyed by like each of the little pieces, like a molecule in a gas or something, uh, or in mm-hmm. a liquid. But then you're trying to come up with what the consequences are when you have, you know, trillions upon trillions of them in a collective and they're all interacting and you can't actually predict what every little piece of it does anymore. And you're trying to like reason about the likelihoods of the behavior of the herd of molecules or the sort of the collective of of all the different interacting particles. And so you think a lot about probability and, and you think about, you know, how to make models of what the world can do that you know, operating in probabilistic terms. Um, and, I, and I think when you're disposed to look at things that way, uh, you can you can appreciate something that, for me, I don't know, this is kind of a prop in a, in, a, in, a, in a discussion, and maybe it's not necessary to think in these terms, but for me, it kind of helps that there's a lot of, let's say, non-randomness uh, or, 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 let's say, sort of stacking of the deck uh, that can ha- that can be happening in a system that is not very visible unless you know how to look for it. I mean, like unless you, so mm-hmm. to speak, have the mm-hmm. sort of have the password or have the the way to notice it. Like, there's a lot of simple ways. Like, if you were you know taking cards out of a deck just off the top of a deck of cards, and it was like the Ace of Hearts, Two of Hearts, Three of Hearts, you say, okay, so this is not a shuffled deck, um, and I can see the pattern, and it's really simple, right? There's a whole lot of not completely randomly shuffled decks of cards where if you just started taking cards off the top of the deck it would not be so easy for you to notice uh, that it was not randomly shuffled and like what if the deck were you know a trillion cards instead of just 52 right like how much more how many more cards would you have to take and how much how clever how much clever would you have to be in order to realize like okay this isn't just randomly taken you know from all the possible arrangements um and and i think the point is then that there can be a lot of uh, decks of cards that are stacked in ways that it's not so easy for you to tell that someone has fiddled with the odds. Um, and especially that's true if the deck has, you know, a trillion cards in it instead of just 52. 
And the question is then how would you ever notice that something wasn't just like a, a random shuffling of the cards? Um, I think a great example of this, again, like I think the story of Joseph from start to finish contains all sorts of interesting comments on this. There's this weird episode with Judah and Tamar in the middle where mm -hmm. uh, she's pretending to be a cultic prostitute and he promises to give her a goat in exchange for their night together. And then he has to come back later and look for her. But as a collateral, she takes his staff and his seal and his petil, his like his cord, um, maybe his tzitzit or, you know, however we want to read it. But the point is that it's, again, it's three things like the three spices. Three is, you know, emblematically, you know, it's, it's like uh, a, a number that implies in halakha, uh, the sure thing that this isn't random, you know, like the, the chazaka yeah, and chazaka, chazaka is three. Yeah. yeah. So a status, so the point is, is it a status? Of he wants to eventually when she's pregnant later and she was already promised to his third son, he says, okay, so we have to burn her. Uh, and then she presents these three signs to him and no one else knows uh, what that means. But to him, it's like, oh, that immediately evokes this episode because he knows the person to whom he gave these signs. Right. So it's like a password. There's a covenantal relationship between them that's authenticated by certain signs. And only he individually is in the position to recognize that. So it's in his subjective experience, whether it's that she's the woman who actually took those signs from him, or whether it's that a Kadosh Baruch who is showing him exactly those signs to make a point to him and remind him of something mm -hmm. so that he'll decide differently. It's like finding a letter on your desk that's like, you know, say, says, uh, dear rabbi, uh, uh, what, what, uh, and then starts talking to you about, you, you know, the details of your life, things that only, you know, you're not going to look at that and say, oh, well, well, maybe this letter was assembled by a, a, a thermal fluctuation of molecules and it doesn't mean anything. In, in fact, even if it were assembled by a thermal fluctuation of molecules, you're still going to read the letter because it's addressed mm -hmm. to you and it's obvious, right? There are things about improbability that we recognize as being specifically addressed to us in ways we maybe only can recognize um, that, that causes us to, to take a closer look and to pay attention. Um, and, 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 and you see, and, and, and Jeremy, you see that improbability in the Torah. You see that improbability. I, the way I would put in, it in, is in, in my own experience, the way it started was there's a methodology for studying the Torah where you find intertextualities between passages. And I think that's where you developed a technique. And, I, and I, I think then I started to ask the question, can you apply that methodology of studying your life, you know, or rather that methodology of studying text to, to the events of your life and, and see you know, what you make of it? And then only afterwards did I realize that the Torah actually, in a sense, is teaching that methodology as a way of understanding the events of your life through mm -hmm. specific episodes and the narratives described in the Torah. So. I don't think that means that like now you have to go around and you know look at every license plate number that you see and think it's a hidden message. I think in fact there's something deranged about that and that's probably why you know the Torah regards I was talking about the staff and the serpent before like the serpent isn't just a talking animal it's an animal that tempts you into right. uh, transgression it's like a you know and also it, it's a, a the, the word nachash also refers to augury you know like pagan divination and it's forbidden so you know, th this is a complicated issue. I don't think the point is, oh, all Jews are supposed to be going around and just sort of kind of like imagining that everything is lucky numbers that they have to interpret. We're not supposed to learn what Hashem wants mostly by 
you know, listening to the wind, we're supposed to study the Torah and do that. And that's why this, this kind of dry and cut off kind of caricature I was making of some extreme of modern orthodoxy before is actually, like I was saying, very healthy because there's discipline and not like looking for messages and just saying like, well, how do I make sense uh -huh. of this? I should, I should study the Torah and try to figure out what I should do. But if you really never are open to that, right, if you near, if you really never are willing to acknowledge that Akados Baruch Hu is Borei Olam, he's creator of the world, and that everything is, you know, nothing is beyond him and everything is open to him, and that he wants actually to have a relationship with you, then you're going to miss the message and, and, and you're going to feel much more alone than you're supposed to feel. And I think that's true for us yeah. individually and at a national level. And, and, and just if I can stay with you on this, yeah. you, you've referred to Hashem, to God, a few times as Borei Olam. Mm -hmm. If I had to press you, what is the reason you believe God is the creator of the world? Is it because of these sequences or these hidden messages in the Torah that seem to imply a divine author? Or is it, or do you see it in the universe? I mean, I was bringing up what I know as a layman, the teleological approach, the argument for, you know, the complexity of the universe implies God's existence, or how else can we explain how matter came into existence, you know, without, you know, um, a pre-existing being to bring them into existence. So, I, you know, it doesn't have to be that, obviously. You're the scientist, I'm not. Why do you think God is a Baray Is that just a belief? The way that I began to approach it when I was first interested in the Torah was to say, I have made a choice to talk about the world and act in the world according to a system laid out for me here in this tradition and in the Torah. And if I'm going to do that, that's what it's telling me. And so now I need to understand what that means. And, and I, I think I, I took it very much as kind of a, not something that you test as, you know, can I prove it from evidence, but more like it's an axiom that allows you to reason about other things or that allows you to make choices about how to act. And, and then I think as time went on, um, and, and more, and so I, I, you notice I'm, I'm, I'm invoking this idea that he's Borei Olam, because what I'm saying is, is that if, if he creates the world, then he has the, 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 the fundamental point is that he chooses the world. He's like the author of the world. Um, right. But and, he's, but, and there's, he's, but he, but you came to that original conclusion or let's say just operating according to that assumption, because why, what was it that inspired you to unless that's just something you for me it was very personally magic. kind of tribalistic like it was it was it was if we're talking about my personal development you know i grew up in a, a a home with some jewish identity in a community with very few jews i was the the son of the daughter of holocaust survivors who had mm -hmm. come to the united states from europe when she was a teenager um and I, I went to study in the UK um, after college um, at Oxford on a, on a Rhodes Scholarship. Mm -hmm. I met a whole lot of people who really hated Israel, and I was totally like stunned and bowled over by it because I'd been very sheltered from all of that and didn't know much or care much about Israel mm -hmm. um, at the time. And it just kind of like turned me upside down enough that I, I said, okay, I want to take enough of an interest in this to understand what the situation was. And I, I think I visited Israel for the first time, and I just came up feeling like, I feel more at home here, and I'm, I'm here in Israel now. I feel more at home here than I, mm -hmm. I, I did anywhere I've ever been. 
And I, 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 I fell in love with my people. I fell in love with the land. I fell in love bit by bit with the Torah as well as, as an intellectual pursuit, let's say. And I just said, right now I'm turning towards this and I'm going to like close ranks with it. And I, I will, I will experiment with the notion that it is absolutely correct and cannot be wrong. And that if that's so, and it seems wrong to me, then I need to think more and understand it more deeply instead of just letting go of it or dropping the part of it that I don't like. And I, I kind of made like a, let's give that a try for a decade or something kind of so choice. It was like, so it, so it was that, and, and I'm sorry to keep doing this to you. I hope no, this no, is no, no. so, now you're a fascinating guy and, and it's, um, it's quite uh, inspiring actually, because you, what you're doing, what you, what you've done is basically say, look, I want to take this tradition seriously. What, 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 uh, to take Judaism seriously, I guess you have to sort of buy into some of these axioms. There's a God that God created the universe, but you're not, you're not saying to us, I just want to be clear. You're not saying to us, I came to those conclusions because intellectually they made more sense than not believing in them. Yeah, no, I I think, I mean, it's, it's complicated because, you know, when I was in the UK, I started reading Rev. Jonathan Sachs and Mm -hmm. he was very good at translating Judaic ideas into the language of, of Western philosophy. And so I think Mm -hmm. I was drawn onward by the discovery that there were things that I thought were kind of just my personal philosophy that were actually very Jewish. And I was like, Oh, okay. So maybe I'm more Jewish than I realized. So it's not like there was (laughs) nothing there intellectually that cohered at the outset, but there was a lot that I was just, I, I I said, I, I made a commitment and a decision at some point to just say, for, for right now, and you know maybe this won't take or it won't make sense, but for right now, my job intellectually is to be matzdik Hashem, like to to prove Hakadosh Baruch Hu right, prove the Torah right, and to you know try to figure out how to do that in a way where I don't like just lobotomize myself in order to make it feel comfortable. Like so, I, I can't mm-hmm. get rid of what I know about science, and I can't start blinding myself to what else that I know is true about the world and you know the reasons that I have to think that and the evidence and the argument. So you just like hold on to things that are seem very much intention and you don't let go of either of them and you don't assume that it has to feel comfortable after 10 minutes. Um, but you know, after 10 years, it does feel different. And, and I, I think that was how it was for me for a while and I, it didn't bother me, but then I think it just, it reached a point as life went on where, I, I don't know, you, you, you face real crises and you, you read in, in Tfilah, like Hashem is Shomea Tfilah, like he hears your prayers. And at some point I remember, like there was something I was really worried about, maybe with my health or something. And I was just thinking to myself, okay, so if Hashem is Shomea Tfilah, if he hears our prayers, does that mean he always gives us what we want? It's clearly not, mm-hmm. right? So does that mean this is just a lie? Like that it's comforting to say that, but like sometimes he hears and sometimes he doesn't. And if it's not a lie, then what does it mean that he's Shomayat Filah? It must mean that mm-hmm. regardless of what happens, that there's a sense in which he is hearing it. And that must mean that whatever does happen is his answer. And then, it, you know, it, it sort of led me into like, okay, so now this is starting to be like a dialogue where there is a, an iteration where you say what happens next is the answer. And that becomes part of the data I'm using to make my next decision. Um, and, and, once you try to live that way, you suddenly kind of feel like the things that are happening don't feel to me like they're being drawn from a shuffle deck uh, entirely. And, and, and sometimes that can really knock you off your feet once you're sensitive to details and, 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 and 
And in a sense, applying the methodology of how you notice interesting things in the Torah itself um, to, to what you see happening in your life. Uh, but I, I guess something going back to what you were just saying, it, it reminded me of a, a, a point I think you know that has to be made at this juncture, which is that um, the if you look at how most people go through life and let's say believe that science is true, most people are not science experts, right? They're they 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 have reason to think that science works, but it's like because their phone works or because the airplane stays in the air or whatever, they have, they see evidence in their experience that things about science work. And then most of what scientists say, they, they have to kind of trust like, oh, yeah, they're the experts. And so, you know, I'll trust what you say. Um, and judged by that standard, which is how most people have to relate to science anyway, I think you can do the same thing with, with the Torah and just say like, well, it's, it's just justifying itself in other equally empirically testable terms. So it's not trying to give you like airplanes that stay in the air, but you know, what the Hebrew prophets have said about the eternity of Hashem's Brit with Am Yisrael and, and how, you know, we're going to return to our land and, you know, be dancing in the streets of Jerusalem and stuff would have seemed ludicrous at most points in the last 1500 years. And now look, you know, where we are and, and, and the, the, the situation that we're in, right? Like there's a lot of stuff like that where, it's it's yeah. more amazing yeah. than an airplane staying in the air. And so then it becomes a question of like how the experts look at it. And if you want an expert conversation between expert scientists and experts on the Torah, there aren't a lot of people who actually can speak both of those languages. And so I don't think we really had that out yet. Right. That's amazing. I love that analogy um, because the airplane is staying in the air in terms of the parallel to Torah, to Judaism. Uh, I'll say something also, uh, Jeremy, that you said was very beautiful about God hearing our prayers, but yet not always getting what we want. So Rabbi Salvechik, as you quoted him before, has a very beautiful teaching. He says that Hashem, we believe, is a Shema tefillah, but not necessarily always a Mechabel tefillah. Meaning that he, he just because he doesn't always accept or say yes to the prayers, the requests that we're making of him, doesn't mean he isn't listening. And I remember when my kids were little, I always had this... You know, what, 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 whenever I, I got the strength to basically, you know, say no to my children, I'm not, I was never a very good disciplinarian. My wife had to do it a lot. But once in a while, I'd say no. And what was their immediate reaction when they were little? You're not listening. Because in their minds, what they were asking for was such a legitimate thing. And, you know, you have the candy. I love the candy. Give me the candy. And if you don't, you're like, you know, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm bringing it down to like, but in a sense, we come before Shem in the same way. We are so convinced that the things we're praying for are such legitimate things. And of course they are. God forbid somebody's sick. You're supposed to daven for their healing, but we're not privy to all of the, we don't know about the, you know, the cavities we can get, you know, from the candy, so to speak. Hashem is privy to all these other. So then we make that assumption. That if, if Hashem is not giving me what I'm asking for, because in my mind it's so legit, it must be God's not listening. And that's the idea, I think, between of Rav Salvechik's concept of being a Shomeat filah. He's listening, but not always in a Kabel, because sometimes the answer could be no, and it could feel very cruel. And we'd rather think God isn't listening than saying no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But I think but, another thing that was very challenging for me in considering that exact issue is that I'd already convinced myself, again, studying Tanakh, that lishmoa, like the verb to to hear, and I think others have made this argument about it, you can't read it as just being like, 
you hear, but you don't react. You don't do anything. There's no evidence that you hear, right? That it's a very active verb, you know, like all of this, uh, like B'nai Israel didn't hearken to my voice when Hashem is talking about that. Mm-hmm. He's talking about their actions. He's saying like they, they didn't heed my speech and they right. did something different than they were supposed to. So if Hashem is Shomei Atfilah, then he's, even if the answer is no, he's giving you an answer. And I think confronting the idea that whatever happens is the answer uh, is a very hard thing to face. But if it is an answer from him, then it can become the basis for an exchange that goes over multiple iterations of, okay, now I'll do some stuff and I'll, I'll study and I'll pray. Right. Which is why, and, and which is why it's not inappropriate from a Jewish theological perspective to get angry with God Mm. or to be disappointed in God. Because if in fact we do see those as answers, like I'm praying for someone and, you know, I mean, whatever, my, my mother, many, many years ago, she passed away at a very, very young age. I have a picture here on my wall. I'm, I got to meet the late, great Lubavitch Rebbe. I went to all these Rebbe's for brachos and prayers for her. And she, I went with her. I, sometimes I went myself. And, you know, um, and whatever whatever the reason is, it was not meant to be. She was not She was not meant to... Uh, to survive the breast cancer that she had, unfortunately. Um, so, if 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 I feel like like Hashem was giving me an answer, it just wasn't the answer we were looking for, then that's going to upset, make me very at, at, at times angry with God, at times disappointed. But you know, I don't know if you heard the story. It's a famous story of um, a group of Holocaust survivors. They were still going through the show at the time, and they put God on trial. Have you ever heard this? I think so maybe, it's meant yeah. in, it's in, in some Hasidish uh, Svarim that um, they, they put God on trial, and they had like God was the defendant, and there was a prosecutor, there was a defense attorney for, for, for not, you know, uh, protecting the Jewish people during the Shoah. And uh, the jury in this story, they convicted God. They said God was wrong. And somebody then looked at his watch and looked outside and saw the sun was beginning to set. They say, okay, we got to go down Mincha now. <laughs> yeah. We have to go pray. And it's a crazy, <laughs> it's a crazy story. But what it shows is that like, yeah, we're upset. We don't understand. Or maybe we do understand and now we're really angry. But it's time to go down Mincha. Like we have to decide if we can have a relationship with Hashem because that relationship can't always be revolving around what, you know, the way, you know, reality, I think, is supposed to look like. Yeah, I mean, especially when talking about things like the Shoah, you know, you, you have to leave room for uh, there are things we, we can't comprehend and, and, you know, that piece of the story. And you mentioned Sefer Eov before. It's obviously all overly simple and, and too straightforward to just say, oh, yeah, if, if a Gadosh Baruch is happy with you, you get a, a Baruch And if he's not happy with you, you get some kind of you know, terrible event in your life and, and you just kind of like skate right. from one of those to the other and it's a video game and you're just trying to kind of get the most points. Like it, that isn't how it's supposed to work. I think though in the present era, we, I, the way I would put it is because there is a slippery slope to the wrong attitude, like to the attitude of Eo's friends who come and just tell him when he's suffering that it's because he sinned. Because that slippery slope exists, 
there is a, a sort of a tone you can take of saying to anyone who talks about the world as though what happens in it comes from Hashem and has meaning, you can just say, oh, what? Are you saying that like all the people who died in the Shoah, like right. that they deserved it? Right. And, and so let's sweep all that aside. And it's, it's too yeah. convenient because in the same mm-hmm. era, it is very ideologically comfortable, surrounded on all sides by a sort of Hellenistic, scientistic uh, sort of soup of ideas where people from the outside will just laugh at you and dismiss you if you talk in those terms, right? Where you say, oh, I think that this thing happened because it's, you know, Akados Baruch who is, is sending me a message or he's he's helping me or he's trying to reward me or whatever. If you say those things, like, you know, you'll get laughed at um, on a university campus in, in the Ivy League or whatever. So suddenly it's like, well, we can be much more comfortable getting Ivy League degrees. And we also can like teach people the discipline of not being EO's friends and not making that mistake. So it mm-hmm. must be just like double down on more and more and more of that. And this is the, this is, I think the, the other extreme, you know, where at the end, um, what, what's so funny, I think about the example of Joseph, I keep mentioning is that he, he is a personality where he relates to the world as like a predictable natural mechanism and he's helping Pharaoh to buy low and sell high and sort of beat the system mm-hmm. and, and get rich. And and the point is like he saves Egypt without chuva. Like there's no repentance. It's not like, oh, we're facing a terrible calamity like in Nineveh mm-hmm. or whatever. Like let's all wear sackcloth and, you know, change our ways. No, you just need to sort of like figure out the predictable rhythms of the agricultural cycle and you're fine and you don't have to fix your ways at all. You know, that there's a problem with that from the perspective of Tanakh. And the way you see that is that it all ends in slavery to Paro, right? Like what Yosef ultimately does is he's buying the land and the people, lock, stock and barrel for Paro, and they're becoming his slaves. And, and I think that the, the modern analogy of that is just like, if you, if you won't let the idea that Hashem really plays an active role in shaping the events of our lives or our national history or whatever in, um, then you won't end up serving Hashem, even if your intention is to do so. You'll end up being a slave to Paro, in a sense, and and we have to avoid that slippery slope as well. Yeah, and and that's that's what the Rambam actually wrote. The great Maimonides wrote this about viewing uh, uh, viewing the things that happen to you in your life as a mikre, as happenstance, as some sort of coincidence. Now, I, I think you articulated that beautifully. That problem we have. Why is it that if we believe? That things are happening for a bigger reason. Why? Why do we? You know, what ends up happening is because we can't figure out what the reason is. We can't figure out exactly. We don't have prophecy. Yeah. That's you know we don't we don't we're not we we don't have nevuah today. So if we don't have nevuah, so what are we doing? We're saying we believe things are happening for supernatural reasons, but we can't explain them, and that's mm-hmm. why we get laughed off on a, on a you know you said on an Ivy League campus. But I would say, isn't there an, it's a little hypocritical, but it's because science has certain, the world of science has certain axioms and certain um, assumptions, and they don't always fully carry themselves out. Well, they can't explain everything, but they still hold on to those assumptions. It's the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, so we, I I don't know if you find that analogous or not. I was just thinking about that as you were describing, because it's like, I'm often reticent to like say, oh, it's Hashem. But if it's Hashem, how come it's going on like this and it's not going on like that? And what's supposed to happen? And I don't know the answers to those questions. So then you say, ah, oh, let's explain it on natural causes. But that's really 
theologically untenable as far as Judaism is concerned. We're supposed to see things happening in our lives as a product of God. And I love what you said about Egypt, that because there was no tshuva, there was no introspection about the seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. It was just a practical way of, of you're right, what resulted? Slavery. It's true. Yeah. It's a very powerful idea. But do you see that analogy in science also? Like how come it flies? It, it's not acceptable in our world of religion, of Judaism, but it's acceptable in science to say, well, we hold of these things, but we can't explain everything else. But we're, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think, well, on the one hand, one has to be careful when, I, I think sometimes there's a version of that way of talking that for me gets too simple where sometimes people kind of want to say, oh, well, science is also based on a kind of faith. And so, you know, faith of all different kinds is good. So like, perhaps you'd like this one, you know, that, 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 that sometimes uh, sweeps too much subtlety under the rug, I would say, but there's a version of, 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 of that kind of argument where I'm, I'm okay with making it where I would say the following that really when you're using theory in, in science, you're, you're taking a particular interpretive frame that you've proposed that you've devised because all of our theories are actually our own devisings. And this is something that's hard for some scientists to remember because they're very impressed with their theories, but the, the world is never the theory the same way that, you know, God is never the idol. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, you, th you, you make up, a theory to explain events. And then you say, I, I have a, a few different observations here. And actually I like about this theory that, you know, it makes this event predictable from that one and from that one, and it all kind of coheres. And I still have this thing over here and it doesn't quite fit yet, but I'm not going to say I haven't made progress in pulling things together and right. the way, but the issue right. is that science makes progress by not saying, Oh, there's one thing I can't explain call it all off. It's all just sort of like the, the designer putting things where he wants and like it all just comes from his choice and, and there's nothing else to, to do there. Like you make progress in science by insisting on like, let's keep on trying to change the theory so that it, more of it fits together. But on the other hand, you're right. Just because you have a theory that explains, you know, these observations and those, but there's this third category where it's still kind of a puzzle. You don't say like, we've got nothing. It doesn't make sense. Um, and, and people are not going to make progress in that way unless they kind of are reluctant to change their theories because you can't change your theory every five minutes and, and make intellectual progress and understanding their implications. So I think that's absolutely right. And I think the analog, you know, when you're talking about relationship to Akadus Baruch Hu, this gets kind of trippy, but I, I, th I think it's, it's, um, it's even maybe evoked a little bit. Again, going back to the burning bush, because I think that's just like the source for almost everything in this discussion, if you look at it the right way. Others have observed this before. Moshe is standing over a bush that is on fire in the desert by himself, like an unknown plant. And it even says, like it's not eaten, which of course means it's not being burned up by the fire, but maybe also like it's, it's, it's not being eaten, but rather it's, it's being inhaled, right? Um, that you're, you're standing over a plant of unknown origin and, and then you see a stick turn into a snake, you know, while the plant is on fire. And then you go to someone and you say, okay, so I was like inhaling the fumes of an unknown plant in the middle of the desert by myself. And I saw some crazy things. Doesn't that mean that I came from the creator of the world? And they could say, okay, maybe, or maybe you were just hallucinating. And what it's pointing to, I, the point is not that, oh, it's all a bad trip. The point is that there's a fundamental epistemological problem that's at the bottom of all of this, where like, if you really want to go after this sort of theistic interpretive frame on the world, 
you need to remember how uh, little solid ground you're actually standing on when you go all the way to the bottom. Like, why do you think there's anything other than your sensory experiences? Why do you think other people have experience of the world, you know, just because you talk to them and they talk back to you? You're actually interpreting the events of your experience with a theory. And the theory is that what it's like to be this other person who's talking back to you is analogous enough to what your own experience is like that you can kind of predict what they're going to say by sort of assuming that like the words you say correspond to your thoughts and emotions enough that you can kind of model their thoughts and emotions, which will help you to predict their actions and what they're going to say, et cetera, et cetera. So like the possibility of dialogue between two people, like we don't think about it because we learn it as kids and we never you know, question it, but that's actually an interpretive frame for experience, right? Like you are actually mm -hmm. using assumptions about the fact that, not the fact, but like you, assuming that other people are there to be partners in dialogue and it works well enough that you don't question it. So I think the right. point is there's an opportunity. Well, we have to. I mean, we, we have to do that. I mean, we just. Yeah, you, I agree that, you, well, the way yeah. I would put it is, you have to if you have certain goals <laughs> you can be a, a, a psychopath you know and not do that um and and if you, you know some other things become easier you know which is like terrifying to acknowledge but I, this is very very you know uh the, the the bottom layer of epistemic skepticism you know you have to start there in an argument with someone who's saying like oh well you know belief in god is nonsense like oh really what about you know belief that your parents are not just like a sort of sensory experience for your consciousness you know have you proven that using science i mean you can't it's it's outside of science right. it's actually you have to assume those problems away to get going with a whole bunch of stuff and and i think the point is that with the idea of relationship to a creator you could start by saying okay let me see if the idea that a personality has shaped all the events of my experience is a useful interpretive frame for predicting what I experience in the world or what my nation experiences in the world. And, and I think the point is that if you try to do that on your own, then you're just tortured like Eo because it's, you don't, you don't have enough guidance on how to figure it out. And from that perspective, right. what the Torah is supposed to be is that, that guidance. It's like saying, it's a whole bunch of, it's like a cheat sheet it's saying like, okay, start with, with this much information about what that personality wants you to do. And then maybe you can start to learn to talk to him, but it's going to be hard. It's like a lot harder than talking to a person. Wow. Wow. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I, I, I have so much more. I have one last question for you, if that's okay with you. First of all, thank you so much for your time. You know, one of your inspirations I'm told is Rabbi David Foreman. Is that true? Indeed. You definitely like to follow him. So yeah, he we're, happens we're good to friends. Be the, oh, Hashem. oh he, he's amazing. Uh, I, he's the father-in-law of one of our rabbis here, Rabbi Moshe Davis. Uh, who works for us here at MGE. Um, and he actually shared with Andrew, a producer for the Wilds cast here, uh, this amazing story how a Dan Brown novel was somehow an impetus. <laughs> now, I don't know. Am uh, I allowed to bring this up? Is, was this like, uh, is sure, this okay? sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, uh, that's fine. So I don't Dan, know. I, Dan, I, I, Dan Brown, for those of you unfamiliar, you know, he wrote The Da Vinci Code and, so I'm just curious if there were, if you could share that with us as a, sure, a way of yeah. landing Absolutely. this plane. <laughs> yeah, so we have been talking about a subject that actually is um, uh, one that 
Rabbi Foreman, I think, quite brilliantly approaches in his own way, reading uh, some of the same sources, but focusing on mostly other details. Like, so he's also looking at the life of Joseph and um, is interested in the question of how Joseph is predicting the future and is, is noticing that there are details in the experience that he has in one part of his life that maybe kind of give him a, a window into um, uh, how to make sense of Pharaoh's dreams. And so, you know, I, I love the Shiorim of Rabbi Foreman. I think he has really unique insights about this. But he summarizes that whole idea as kind of the idea of like getting a tap on the shoulder from Hashem. Um, uh, so you don't necessarily know what it means, but like you're struck by the alignment of events that it's so improbable that you suddenly feel this this presence of Hashem there kind of shaping the events of your life and you kind of know you're supposed to look closely and pay attention because he's really there with you. Um, and I, I had listened to, to some shiurim of his about that topic. And then actually I, I had an experience that I, I shared with him because I it, it ended up um, being very related to, to this, this, this way of, of looking at things. So I was listening, in fact, to another shiur by Rabbi Foreman that was about Rosh Hashanah. Um, uh, and uh, this was like, you know, in Chodesh Elul, maybe like a week or two before um, Rosh Hashanah. And it was talking about Zichronot and Shofarot and, you know, the Nachuyot, the, uh, the different sort of principles that are laid out in the tefillah, in the prayer of Rosh Hashanah. And, and specifically on the subject of Zichronot, he was talking about um, what it means to want to ask Hashem to remember you, because, you know, he, he doesn't forget things in, in the way that people forget things. So if not, then what does it mean for him to suddenly, you know, be remembering and then to ask him to remember you in, in, your, in your prayer? And the example he gives, um, Rabbi Foreman gives is, imagine that you're, this is going to be for people who know Harry Potter, but like, imagine you're a sort of a, <laughs> a porter in the train station, you know, in King's Cross in London. Um, and a little boy, you know, uh, wearing round glasses comes up to you and says, excuse me, sir, can you tell me the way to platform nine and three quarters, you know, which is where like the train to Hogwarts sets off from. And, and then you sort of suddenly realize that you're a character in this story and you, you have this awe at being, kind of a, uh, a, a, an implement in a sense in the hand of an author who's choosing how to involve you in a story that he's writing. And you suddenly have this, this hope and this desire for the role that you play in the story to matter. And like, that you're praying to him to remember you in the sense that he should like write you into the story in a way that has significance. Mm. So that was the, that was the argument that Rabbi Foreman was making, which I think is a very interesting reading of that, um, of the idea of, of Zichronot. And then, um, so I listened to that. This is when I was living in, in uh, Boston area. I listened to that. that, that she, just, or, just to clarify that, that that God, that when you're davening, you're asking Hashem to remember you. It's not just like, oh, remember me for good, but yeah. but write me into what the story of Jewish history that I that my life should matter. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is I that, think that, that's what I think that was the point, nice. and mm -hmm. because I think like this example he presents of like the porter in, in King's Cross Station, like, yeah, for yeah. him to mm -hmm. he. He, he suddenly realized he's like glancingly touched on a big story that he's almost not at all a part of. It's just like, oh, there's Harry Potter. And he like 
asked me for directions and then walked away. And now like I'm no longer part of the story. So it's sort of like maybe the, the example is being presented the negative there. But in any case, I thought it was an interesting point. I listened to this show or like, you know, over breakfast or something. Um, and later that day I went and I had lunch with Dan Brown, the author of Da Vinci Code, because he had asked to meet with me. Um, I don't know, a week before, I don't remember. Uh, and I didn't know what about. Um, and, and then, so we, we sat down and had lunch together, um, uh, near my place of work. And at that time he told me that he had written a book titled origin that was about to come out like a month later. Uh, and he had written me with my own name as a character into the book, um, as wow. a scientist who did research on the origins of life, you know, basically he'd read about me and my research and wanted that to be part of the story of the book. And so he just put that in the book um, and didn't change my name. And um, he wanted to let me know because the book was about to come out and probably would sell a lot of copies and my name was going to wow. be, you know, there. So uh, leaving aside other and aspects. Of course, of, of, of course, you uh, demanded royalties, <laughs> I would imagine. So, so leaving those, those you know, sessions aside, I, I never uh, received or, or demanded um, any royalties um, of any kind <laughs> for it. But I, you know, it was a bit bewildering to suddenly, you know, have it happen with so little time before the book came out. So it was a little, uh, I was a bit, a bit perturbed at the time, but in any case, I don't know. So what, by, by the end of the day, I was kind of, obviously when you first hear this, it was just mostly about the fact that that was happening. And I was kind of thinking about it and then you kind of sort of see these things laid before you. And it's like, okay, this morning I was listening to a shiur where it was talking about being a character in a book by J.K. Rowling, who like mm. J.K. Rowling and Dan Brown are like the two most highly sold like authors of the latter half of the 20th century or the early part of the 21st century. Um, they both sold a lot of books. Um, uh, they both are really like up there in like top 10 or whatever uh, with other books like, you know, Chairman Mao's little red book, like that, where there's like a right, billion copies right. or something. So, um, so, so in the morning, I was I was listening to someone use as a prop the idea of being written as a character into a book by J.K. Rowling, and that was supposed and, to and like, be are. about Hashem is yeah. there, you know, writing you into his story and telling you that you you know have purpose or meaning and you should do something with it. Um, and then later that day. And this also has to do with the plot of the book, which is kind of like an atheistic magnum opus or something from Dan Brown. And it's all about how there is no God because my research about the origins of life has proved that there's no God. Like that's sort of what the book is about. Um, uh, if, if you read it, which is funny. Um, uh, so, so, so I, I, I was, I came to, to learn, I, I had been made a character in a book by like the other you know, author, like punching nearly at the weight of, of J.K. Rowling um, about how there was no God, right? So it it, it hmm. couldn't help but sort of feel to me like, an, an, like a total absurdity that these two things were sort of lining up right next to each other. And of course, you don't know what it means, right? And I also like, I, I assume that to other people, um, it, might, it might not even sort of, be that striking or like it's like right. stories about no, other but, people's but lives to... they don't they don't have the same impact on you but when it's your own life and things like that happen it just felt to me like getting really like uh punched in the shoulder <laughs> um and wow. and that i 
I, I had to say like, okay, so what, what am I supposed to do now because of this? Like this, and, and it's a clear instance where it has no obvious meaning in terms of, it's not a, a sort of signed letter telling you, you must do X, Y, or Z. Um, but on the other hand, to just ignore it and be like, well, eh, it doesn't mean anything. I, 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 at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't just right. see it as meaningless. Um, it, so this, uh, th so, so this, this very much goes to what you and I were talking about, because I think as religious believing Jews, we're supposed to believe that there was a, there's some something to that, but we also don't have the arrogance to think that we necessarily can know mm -hmm. what that message is. Yeah. But I think it's more important. It's just me, my own opinion as a rabbi. I think it's more important to maintain that things are happening for a reason and that we're supposed to try to find some purpose and meaning in it. Uh, yeah. go, going back to why bad things happen to good people, Rabbi Salvechik famously said in his Koldo Dido Fake that whereas we can't really answer the what, the, the why, we can answer the what. So it's not lama, but lima. Mm -hmm. It's not why this bad thing's in, but, but to what? Yeah. How can we make, because that's our job is to find meaning and purpose in everything in this world. Yeah, and now, the truth you, is that I for me, what I... It, I mean, I just on the point of of lima that you're making, I think that that kind of is the conclusion I came to. That the point is not like it, it was a secret message that I couldn't decode and I never found out what it is I was supposed to do. But it's more like you're being shocked into realizing like this is a chance to choose what to do. So like choose well and and decide to make mm -hmm. something out of this. So right. you know, I I ended up writing a book of my own partly because I really kind of felt like okay, I don't really like the way I'm being used in this book to like write a story about how there is no God. So like, why don't I, you know, put some words on a page myself. And I wouldn't say that was the total motivation that I had for writing a book, but it certainly made me think a lot about how to write the book because I ended up writing it both as a book about physics and also as a Dvar Torah so that it wouldn't be confused with a, a sort of uh, atheistic uh, manifesto, mm -hmm. uh, if I if I just chose to talk about the physics, um, and I, I think the other thing is, but, is but can I ask a question? Yeah, going, sure, sure. going back, if 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 he had just honed in on your physics and not your Torah, would that be the conclusion that he or any other reader of your works would come to? Um, well, I don't think so because I think that um, when people say, "Oh, if we figure out the origins of life, like that would disprove the Bible." That to me is a either like a, a sort of a, a pagan or a simplistic or maybe heavily Christian influenced reading of of the Torah uh, of that, the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so yeah. I think like the whole line of scrimmage where you have people on both sides being like either the the story of creation in the Bible is true or science is true and you have to pick one. I think they are all sharing the same false premises about what the subject of conversation even should be. Um, and no one in that argument really is reading the Torah with sophistication. Um, and, and so I, in that sense, I, I don't think that like doing science about the past impinges on, on what um, we, we see as true or not true about, you know, what's in the Torah. And you can argue that from the Torah itself and you can argue it even just thinking about what science is and, and, um, what other kinds of narrative approaches to what's true about the world are. So, you know, that I, I don't think 
you know, was so much the issue, but I didn't want to be used as a prop in someone else's bad argument. Yeah. And, and I, and I definitely, and, and, and you're, and you're saying the book, your book, which is called every life is on fire, mm-hmm. how thermodynamics explain the origin of living things. You're saying that that was somewhat inspired. You were somewhat inspired to write that book to ensure that people wouldn't use you or use your teachings, your writings as, as some sort of evidence of atheism? I would say it's more the way I wrote it. Like I, I think the way that I, I decided to write it, mm-hmm. uh, I, w- I went looking for it. What I said was, I'm not just going to write a book. I, I was maybe going to write a book for, for public consumption about the physics. And I said, okay, I can't write this in a way where someone can just kind of slice off the physics and, and run with that um, and, and use me for what purpose they want um, and pretend that I have nothing else to say. Because like specifically in, in, in the Dan Brown book, there's some quote from my character of like, oh, I leave all of that stuff to like philosophers and theologians or clerics or whatever, clergy. And, and I, I explicitly don't have that attitude. I have lots to say, as, as you now see, about these kinds of topics. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be, mm-hmm. you know, construed otherwise. So I think it was more like it motivated me to really wear that aspect on my sleeve and sort of find a way of combining talking about Torah with talking about physics, which is obviously, for some people, a, a horrifying um, choice because I think they just want to know about the science and they have very... Uh, strong disinclination to talk about uh, Torah, perhaps. And and so I, I definitely have gotten some reactions to the book that are kind of like, why would you go and do that? Um, but I think for me, mm-hmm. it was important. And the point is, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know in that case if that was, quote unquote, what I was supposed to do. But I, I think that, in fact, um, you know, moments like that are, are more puzzling in some ways than a lot of other things that, you know, can happen to us in life where, we, first of all, we, we, we don't always see the meaning of things in the present. And then we look backwards, you know, when Yosef was in prison, he wouldn't have thought, well, I'm here because it's great for my career. You know, one day I'm going to mm-hmm. become viceroy of Egypt. And this is like a fantastic right. opportunity for me. Um, and he would have been praying like every day, like get me out of this place. And his prayer would be answered with no, you can't leave. <laughs> and really it's because he's waiting for, you know, the Salmash to come along and like, interpret his dream or whatever um and and for paro to have his dream so there, yeah, there's that in the, in the moment right in the moment but after the fact sure by the yeah. way that's the famous teaching when 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 god says to moshe um you know lo yirani hadam v'chai that it's impossible for a person to see me and live because moshe just had said hareni nakt vodecha you know show me your glory which rashi explains must be you know, let me see what you look like. Well, what does that mean? Uh, Moshe understood that God didn't have a countenance to behold. So really, he was asking why bad things happen to good people. And God said, you can't really know that and still live. But what does the next Pasuk say? The next verse says that God took Moshe and put him into a cleft and caused his presence to pass before him. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous uh, passage in the Talmud that God, you know, Moshe was able to see the, the tefillin, the, the, the tefillin shorosh of, of Hashem, like, so meaning the idea is that after the fact, we can get little glimpses. I think that's yeah. what you were trying to say. I'm giving. No, exactly. Like very, the, you yeah. know, I'll show you my back, like from that exact passage. I think, you know, I've, I've heard um, construed to be about looking backwards at the past and, and seeing more mm-hmm. meaning in it. And by the way, this, more this clarity, little, yeah. but also this idea of not being able to see Hashem and live. Um, I, 
argued elsewhere, and there's way too little time to unpack here, but a whole layer of what we have been talking around that I think is, is very relevant is also the idea of specifically the notion of the importance of tshuva in this dialogue with Ekados Baruch that you don't just hear the voice of Hashem like once you figure out some method and you have like a red phone where you can pick him up, you know, pick it up and, and, and call him whenever you want. Hearing the voice of Hashem always contains this element of his judgment. And so it always, you know, should fill one with yara'ah, with, with awe, um, and also kind of contains for that reason, danger. Like, and it's not danger just because he can't control some divine fire of his, like in the manner of a Greek God, it's danger because we always can be improved and we kind of have to learn how to improve ourselves by having problems. And so there's this bit of an element of like, we're the bush that's on fire where we feel like the fire should just be eating us up. And somehow we're, we're somehow maintaining our integrity in, in the presence of, of that, that voice that, that threatens to destroy us. Um, and, and, and the, the crucial element in that process is understanding the the way that he speaks to us through calamity or through difficulty, right. and then and then letting chuva and be our response to him. That's how we can kind of maintain a dialogue where we survive the fire. Wow, uh, Jeremy, this has been amazing. You're, you're you're a true inspiration and a very rare combination of pure science and pure Torah. <laughs> and, thank you uh, very much. It's been a wonderful I, I, conversation for me too. I really enjoyed yeah. speaking with you. Uh, thank, thank you. And um, I do, if I can, you know, I'm writing a book. Um, it's my third book now, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm writing a basic Judaism book and I do have one chapter on God. And I argue that you can find God by looking at science and history. Those are external ways of finding God. And then I get a little more Kabbalistic and mystical uh, about, about accessing the godly aspect within us. I'd love for you to read the first part, if you wouldn't mind. I want to make sure what I'm saying. Yeah, because it, it touches on some of the things we began discussing about the teleological and the, you know, and, and I, I, I don't pretend to make any um, definitive, you know, evidence, proof type of things. I'm really trying to help people find permission to believe, which is really what this conversation was about. And I have to tell you, just speaking to someone so brilliant and and so steeped in science who's such a believer of torah and mitzvot i have to tell you i'm just really blown away and inspired and i thank you so much i encourage everybody to get uh dr jeremy england's book every life is on fire how thermodynamics explain the origin of living things thank you so much and the best of success in all of your amazing work thank you for the invitation and, and wonderful to meet you Kultuf.